Well, turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, we're continuing our study, of course, of the book of Revelation. Realize that as we looked at it, we saw God the Father gave, gave this message to Jesus, Jesus to an angel, angel to John, then John to the seven churches, which basically ultimately comes back to us in the Scripture. And so that's what we're seeing. Well, this morning, we're looking at the seven letters to the churches. And, and we're going to look at that. The seven churches are churches that were actual churches at the time that John wrote. This was around 95 AD. They existed in the first century. We're going to look at the letters and we're going to be able to look at it and say, okay, let's make some application, not only individually in our lives, but even as a church. Let's think about how does our church, what, what, when we look at the church of Ephesus, how does that compare to our church or the church at Smyrna? Those kind of things. We want to see it as we go through our study. Well, we, let's begin with just sort of a brief review. John, who wrote the gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He's, in, he's old. He's probably in his 90s right now. He's lived in Ephesus for a while. He was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and they take him, and the Romans, because of his testimony of Jesus Christ, they put him on this little island out there and made him work hard, basically, by the testimony of Jesus Christ. While he's in that, on that island, this was under the emperor Domitian, who hated Christians, who tried to kill as many as he possibly could. While on that island on the Lord's Day, which means the first day of the week, he had this vision. John had a vision. He heard this voice speaking. He turns around and he sees Jesus. Jesus standing and there's seven lampstands around him, which actually actually represents seven churches. And he's standing there and he's got seven stars in his right hand and he's got this long robe on and a sash and his eyes are like a flame of fire and his hair is all white and his feet are all burning and everything. And he's looking at John and John looks at him and sees him and just powerful and his voice is like the mighty waters or whatever. And so John faints. And when John faints, Jesus goes and touches him, puts him with his left, his right hand, and raises him back up, and says, "I've got, I've got something for you to do. I've got for you to to t- write down the things you've seen, the things that are, and the things that are future. And I want you to send these to seven churches. The seven lampstands we saw last week represented seven churches. These seven churches, and the seven stars represented the angels. It says the angels of the churches. Now the word angel is angelos, and it really means messenger. And so we talked last week. Did it mean each church had an angel? or did each church have a messenger? And the best probably way to look at it is probably each church had a pastor or a messenger or somebody, and so he's writing to those people. That's what we're seeing. If you remember, the outline of the book of Revelation is verses one, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We saw that last week. That was the vision of Jesus. And then chapters 2 and 3, which is where we are now, we're going to see the letters to the seven churches. It'll take us a couple of weeks to, to, go, by, to go through that. And then beginning in chapter 4 all the way to the end, all future events, and you're going to see some amazing things, the rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, the, uh, the abomination of desolation, the second coming of Jesus, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment, the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth. All of that is in this book, and over the weeks, we'll be seeing how this fits together. So he's writing, and if you notice, he's writing to the seven churches, and there, there, here are the seven churches that were existing at the time that John, John was out on a, a little island out there, and there's Ephesus. And by the way, the order that when we study them in, in the Bible, they go in this order. Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia later. So it's like a backward circle that's going that way. And it, he goes and talks a little bit about each of these churches. Now, there's two thoughts on these churches. One is that these churches, there are some people who believe that these churches represent the panorama of church history. They'll say the very first church is the church in the first century. And then the next church is the church is up two and three hundred years in the future. And then the next church represents the church on up and all that. Well, 
you can sort of do that, and you can look at it, and you can try to make it match, but it doesn't match exactly right. So the second way really to look at it is that these are literal churches, that he's writing to literal churches with literal problems. He's writing to them, and what we're going to do in the weeks that we go through this, we're going to say, let's look at this church. How do we as a church compare to this church? How does it work? What are they saying about this church? What would they say about us? And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to make application. It's the same way that we would do when we study the book of Ephesians or Colossians or Galatians. We look at those letters, and we study them, and we make application in our lives, and that's what we're going to do as we go through these. Now, here's what's amazing. Every one of these letters, there's seven of them, and let me just tell you something. Uh, when I taught this, the first time I've taught the book of Revelation was in 1990, so it's been a long time. And when I taught at that time, I took one week on each of the seven churches. That meant it took seven weeks. I think that might be a little long for a Sunday morning. So what I'm going to do is we're going to try to put two churches together each Sunday morning so we can get through it in three or four weeks at the most. And so you're going to see that. So today we're going to do the first two churches and the next time, of course, the others after that. Each one of these letters to these seven churches all fit the same way. They all have six parts. They all have a destination to which particular church. They all have a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Christ look like? And it all goes back to what he looked like in chapter 1. Then there's a third part, which is called the commendation, in which he builds them up, what the church is doing right. By the way, not all the churches got a a commendation. Then the fourth one is condemnation, where he says what they've done wrong. And by the way, not all the churches did something wrong. In fact, one of the churches we look at today, he gives nothing that they did wrong, and we'll see that. Then there's the exhortation where he says, here's what you need to do. And he tells them what the church needs to do. And then he ends with what he calls a promise. And the promise is for faithful believers. He says, he who overcomes gets this. And the overcomer is a faithful believer. So we're going to see that each one of, as we go through every one of these churches, we'll go through those six things and see them every time. There is a lot, a lot there. Now, this is what you're going to see in the weeks to come, the seven churches. The church at Ephesus, that's our first one, is the lost love church. Then there's Smyrna, the suffering church. Then there's Pergamum, which is the compromising church. There's Thyatira, which is the tolerating church. There is Sardis, which is the dead church. You don't want to be that one. Philadelphia, that's the faithful church. You'd like to be that one. And then Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Now, you probably heard that one. You remember this one Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. I've had some people say, you want to be hot, you don't want to be cold. No, no. You want to be either hot or cold, you don't want to be lukewarm. And we're going to see it when we get to that uh, part of the book as well. So there's a lot of great things here. So we're going to start with uh, Revelation chapter 2. This first one is the letter to the church at Ephesus. So we start off, literature. this is the church without love. This is the church that's moved away from their love. And we're going to talk about what happened there. So as we begin, now here is, uh, he, he writes, he notes, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. And we said that the angel is most likely the messenger, maybe the pastor, somebody there who is overseeing that church. Now let's talk about Ephesus for a second. It's a famous church because we think of the word, the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote to the, to the church of Ephesians some 30 years earlier. It was one of the most famous churches in the world at that time. The city of Ephesus was on a trade route. It was one of the most famous cities in the world. Paul had spent three years there teaching the Bible on his third missionary journey. They were famous, the church of Ephesus, or the city, excuse me, the city of Ephesus was famous for a temple to Diana. Sometimes she's called Artemis. She was a, a goddess, and they had this big, big temple built to her. They thought she fell out of the sky, 
and that they worship her. That's what they did. And so famous for that. And we have Paul's letter that he wrote. By the way, so there, there's Ephesus right there. They're really, a, I mean, it's a beautiful city, everything. Now, the letter in Revelation was written some 30 to 35 years after Paul's letter. So if you wanted to study the Bible, go back to the book of, Ephesus, uh, the book of Ephesians. That's the same church, same people, same aspect of it. And so he's writing to them. So notice it says, in number two is going to be the description of the Lord. And he's the one who holds seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. Look again again at verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now, he describes Jesus there, and if you look and go back to verse 12, he's the one in the midst of the golden lampstands. This is verse 12 of chapter 1. If you go to verse 16 in chapter 1, he's got, he's got the angels in his hand, or the stars in his hand, which are the, the angels and, and, uh, of, the, of the churches, the messengers of the churches. So, as we start the letter, he says, write to those people, and then he describes himself again. This is how he's described over there, and every one of the letters has some description of Jesus Christ. And now we begin, and, and let's ask ourselves a question. Would we want to be the church at Ephesus? Would we want to be these people that God writes to? What does he say? What do we want? So how does he start it? And so he's writing, he's going to give a commendation. Look what he says about them. I know your deeds and your toil, and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Wow, those two verses, that's incredible. He says, I know your deeds. Listen, it starts off by saying, I know. He knows everything. Look, Jesus Christ knows everything. He's called omniscient, which means he knows everything. He knows everything about that church at that time. He knows everything about our church. He knows everything about you. He knows everything what we think. He knows what we think before we think it. We know why we think. He knows why we think it. He knows everything. And so when he writes to this church, he says, I know you. What would he say if he said to us? What would he say about you? Well, look what he says. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. So we'll start with those three. He said, I know your deeds. They did good works. The, the word deeds there means works. It means good works. He says, I know your deeds and your toil. The word toil there means to, to work to exhaustion. You know, sometimes you might get out and say, I worked in the garden, and you didn't do much. But sometimes you worked in the garden, and then the next day you're like this. Oh, my goodness. Because my, you toil to exhaustion. This is the word. This word means you work so hard. So the writer, of course, John is writing it down, but Jesus says, I know you work really hard. I know you toil. You just labor. You labor. You're working so hard. And then he says, and I know your perseverance and your patience. Notice what he says. He says, and you, you, you persevere. You keep on keeping on. Isn't that what we always tell everybody? What we want to do is what? Uh, serve the Lord and keep on keeping on and be strong and faithful. And, and whoa, we just keep going on and on and on. That's what we want. And then he goes on and says, and you cannot tolerate evil men. He says, you stand against false teaching and you don't tolerate sin and error. That We'd go, wow. He says, you don't tolerate evil men. You put to test those whom are, say there's apostles. There were people out there who were claiming to be apostles of Jesus Christ. And they said, no, you tested them and you found out they were not. They're false teachers is what they were. And he says, you, you will not stand... You will, you will not stand for false teaching. You stand against it. You will not tolerate sin. Uh, are they sounding pretty good so far? Man, we're going, whoa, yeah, look, they, they work hard, they labor, 
they persevere, they, they won't stand for false teaching, they do what is right. I mean, they are strong, and it says, uh, you get, you're doing great, you cannot endure evil men, you won't put up with error. And by the way, we'd say, how do we, how do we know what's right or wrong? We go back to Scripture. What about us? Do we say the same thing, that we're going we're gonna to teach the Bible, and we're going to stand strong, and we're going to do good works, and we, we, you know, if we hear about false teaching, we're going to deal with it, we're going to make sure that what's being taught is accurate and true. I mean, we'd say, wow, this is... A, and, 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 and they recognize these false apostles, everything. They persevered and endured. It says, and you're faithful, faithful in my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. You remember 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I mean, they were laboring, and they were fighting, and they were struggling, they were stringing. They were, we'd say, wow, what a church. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a Bible-type church. It sounds like a church that's built on the Scripture and want to do what's right and, and all of those things. And so we say, wow, that church is doing great. They're laboring, they reject false teaching, they, they're doctrinally, they're really, really strong. But you start verse 4, it says, but, but, and there's condemnation. Well, what's wrong? What have they done wrong? He says, I have this against you, that you left your first love. They, they didn't lose their first love. They moved away from it. They lost. They, they moved away. The little inference says, first love you have left. That's what it literally says in the Greek. First love you have left. What is their first love? It's Jesus Christ. They served at the beginning. They said, we do everything we do because Jesus, because we love Jesus, because he loves us. He saved us. He takes care of us. We serve Jesus Christ. But as the years went by, they just began to go through the motions. And it is so easy. Do you remember what it was like when you first believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life? You went, what, what a life. He gave me salvation. I'm saved and saved forever. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live for Jesus. I want to do everything for him because he's the greatest. He saved me. And then 10 years passed. 15 years past. And we still do what's right. But do we have the same love? Are we doing it for the love of Jesus Christ? Or are we doing it because we're supposed to do it? I mean, the Bible says you're supposed to do this. Won't worthy of the calling which you've been called. They literally were serving God, not out of love, but out of duty. Look what they were like in the beginning. This is, this is Paul's letter some 30 years earlier. And he writes about the church at Ephesus, and he says, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith, your faith in Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you and making mention of you in my prayers. He said, everybody knows what kind of church you are. Well, that's what they started like. And it's really easy when a church is doctrinally strong and doing what's right, but it's really easy to move away. Look at this. This great church, so doctrinally strong and right, is serving out of the wrong motive. Duty, not love. And it's so easy for us to do the same thing because when we think about our church, we say, well, our church holds to the Bible. Our church holds to the grace message. Our church does this. We believe this. We're going to do this. We know we're supposed to do this. But are we doing it because we love Jesus or are we doing it because we're supposed to do it? And what happened to the church at Ephesus is they started off great. And it says, but what's happened is you've left your first love. And it's so easy. I mean, when I believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life when I was 19 years old, I mean, I started running. I ran out on the track and told my track coach, Coach Riley, I believed in Christ. You know, and so I would, used to go to the library and tell people, well, I don't go to the library right now and tell anybody. 
What happens? It's so easy to be so excited and serve God out of love, the love for Jesus Christ, and then as the years go by, it's so easy to just begin to do it because it's what we do. And that's what happened to that church. Are you serving because you love Jesus or because you're supposed to? Do you serve and use your gifts and talents and abilities because you love Jesus Christ or because, well, that's what we're supposed to do? Are we doing our duty or are we showing our love? So what's he going to tell them to do? Well, the next thing is the exhortation. So look what he's going to do. He says, verse 5, therefore. And what he's going to do is give them three things. Let me read the verse. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So he tells them to do three things. He says, first of all, remember where you have fallen. He says, think back and remember what it was in the beginning when you served out of joy and love and the love for Jesus Christ and you were basically young and young believer and you were on fire and, and you said, oh man, I love Jesus. I just want to live for him. He says, remember that. Remember what it was like. And then he says, and repent. So change your mind. The repent, word repent doesn't mean turn from sin. It means change your mind. It's just you have to look at the context. And so he's telling them to go back, change your mind. It's not a duty, it's a joy. It's out of love for Jesus Christ. And then he says, and do the deeds, do your actions, because love always is expressed by actions. And he says, do what you're supposed to do. You know, think back to your early days when you realized God's grace for salvation, how he saved you and provided for you, the love you had, the service of joy based on love. That's what we'd like. And this church, the great doctrinally strong church, they said, we work hard, we persevere, we cannot tolerate evil men, we cannot tolerate false teaching, we've persevered for the name of Jesus Christ, and we've not grown weary. We'd say, you are wonderful, except you're doing it with the wrong motive. That's what he tells them. Wow. And he gives them a warning. Look what he says. Do what I told you to do. Remember where you've fallen. Repent. Do the deeds. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What in the, the warning? If action's not taken, he's going to come remove the lampstand. The lampstand's the church. He said, I'm going to remove your church. This doesn't mean people lose salvation. He's, he's going to, the church is no longer going to be there. Well, let me ask you a question. You ever been to Ephesus? The city's still there. The church isn't there. There's no church there. What happened? And 30 years from now, will this church be here? I hope so. I hope I'm still preaching. <laughs> I'll only be 120. No, I'll, I'll be not quite that old. But anyway, so what, what about what happened to them? What happened to them? They lost their testimony. And they lost their church. And let me just say this too. A church can be lost and removed and still be a church. There are churches in this town. They're just nothing more than a social organization. People come there. There's no mention of the Bible. They don't teach the Bible. They don't even actually hold to the Bible. And they have meetings and they do things. It's a social thing. That's not a church. I mean, they may call themselves a church. And that's in this community. And that's all over the world. I read a study the other day, and I, I forgot it. I can't remember exactly, but I think it's every week in the United States between one and 2,000 churches close. They close. They either get too small, they just don't have enough money to support anybody, and they just they close the doors, and that happens a lot. 
What happened to the church at Ephesus? What happened to them? He says, if you don't change, I'm going to remove you. Apparently, maybe he removed them. We don't know. Then he says one other thing in verse 6. He sort of says, well, I got one other good thing I want to say about you. That's verse 6. He says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, whom I also hate. Who in the world is this? The, the Nicol- that's not Nicolaitans. I mean, it's the Nicolaitans, whoever they are. And the truth is, nobody knows who they are. The name actually means uh, to rule over. And so what they thought is there were a group, there was some group in the first century that called themselves Christians, but their goal was to rule over fellow believers, and they were called that, and they had some false teachings and things. And so the right, uh, you know, God, Jesus says to the church, he says, you hate the deeds of these people, which I also hate. Now, he didn't say he hate the people, he hates their deeds. He hates their teaching, he hates the falseness. So you and I can hear something we know is wrong. We don't say, I hate that person. We say, I hate that teaching. I hate that because it's leading people astray. He says, you, you don't stand for those people, and I don't either. And he said, as, but and what are they taught? What, the best we can see is later on in Revelation 2.15, it ties in with these people idolatry and sexual immorality. So that's probably the things they were teaching. He ends with a promise, and promise is this. It says, let, let him have an ear, let him hear. Notice what verse 7 says. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear, that doesn't mean, you know, some people don't have ears. No, it says everybody's got ears. But to have an ear, let him hear means to have an ear means I'm listening carefully. Because the truth is, sometimes people talk and people don't listen at all. You know? And he's saying, I'm, ta- I'm talking to you. If you're listening to me, then listen to what I'm going to say. He says, Let, hear what the Spirit says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat. And so look what he says. If he overcomes, you get to eat of the tree of life in paradise. Now I want you to understand something. An overcomer is not a, just a believer. An overcomer is a faithful believer. In the first John, in first John, the book of first John, he talks about overcomers, and overcomers in first John are believers. Whoever believes overcomes. Now, in the book of Revelation, overcomer is not just a believer. It is one who is faithful, is one who does these things. Uh, overcomer here is going to be the person who goes back and don't loses their love. They start serving out of love again. That's going to be the overcomer, and they're going to do what's right. So he makes a promise to them. Faithfulness equals rewards, by the way, and the promise is you eat from the tree of life. Obviously, in the, in the eternal state, there is a tree of life, in fact, if you, when we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to find that it produces 12 different kinds of fruit, one kind of fruit each month. It's a tree of life. It says, if you overcome, you get to eat from the tree. If you don't overcome, guess what? You don't get to eat from the tree. This is rewards, remember? This is rewards. And this tree, this is the blessing in eternal state. So let me go quickly because we're going to get to the other church. But this is the church at Ephesus. They were faithful workers. They were doing the right things. But it was not out of love. It was duty. He said, remember, repent, do the actions, love. If not, I'm going to remove you. And whoever overcomes will eat from the tree of life in the garden. Wow. So are we that church? It is very easy for a Bible church like us who hold to the Bible, who go verse by verse, who hold to the grace message, who will not tolerate false teaching, it is so easy for us to do it out of duty rather than love for Jesus Christ. So we've got to be careful. We've got to make sure that each one of us individually and as a church as a whole, we're doing what 
He said, let's think back, let's live, the, let's live and serve God out of love for Jesus Christ and not as a duty. Well, let's set the second church, and we'll go through this one fairly quickly. This is the church at Smyrna. It's called the Suffering Church. Now, do you want to be this? No, I, no I'll, I'll, we'll pass. You know, but we're going to look at it. There's the destination is called Smyrna. The word Smyrna means perfume. It's up here. It's only 35 miles from Ephesus. That's all it is. And it is a beautiful place. It's there today. Uh, it's called Ismar. And it's 35 miles from Ephesus. It's a seaport town. This is the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. It is sometimes called the beautiful city. They, they considered themselves very sophisticated. They had a stadium. They had the second largest public library. The largest public library in the world was, was at Alexandria, Egypt. This one was a huge public library. They said, we're very smart were very wise. They were a pagan city. They had a hill that was 500 feet high in which they had idols. They worshiped the emperor. If you lived in this town of Smyrna, if, and these believers lived there, the, the whole town said, you have to worship as God, the emperor of Rome. Now, do you think these people are going to do that? No. And you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to suffer because they're not yielding to this, this culture. They're not doing it. And, and so we're going to see it. Here's the, the description of Jesus in this one. It says, the, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead, who has come to life, says this. So that he's the first and the last, the eternal one, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's the same description as verse 18 of Revelation chapter 1, where he's the living one and all of that. Same thing. He was dead. He's come to life. Same description. He's talking about Jesus as the one who brings life. Now, the reason he's emphasizing death to life is because what's about to happen to these people. And I'm going to tell you that none of us in this room want to be the church at Smyrna. And this actually happened. This was a church. And let's see what happens. He says, verse 9, Here's his, that was his description. Uh, and by the way, when we think about it, Jesus Christ is the eternal one who has conquered death in the suffering and even death cannot separate us from God. There's a reason he's emphasizing conquering death and eternality. Watch what he says, verse 9. This is the commendation. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews or not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know who you are. I know you are faithful. You're faithful in suffering. And look, he says three things. He says, I know your tribulation, which is the suffering and hardship. Listen, they didn't stand for the emperor. They didn't say they believed in the emperor and they got persecuted. In fact, they got, many of them were getting killed. Because of their faith. And you understand this. That in the United States right now, you can, we can worship anytime we want to. Now, that may not happen forever. We can do it right now. But you know, there are other parts of the world. If you stand for Jesus Christ, they kill you. That's other parts of the world right now. At the time that this was written, those people in Smyrna, because they stood for Jesus Christ, were being put to death because they stood for Jesus Christ. Look what it says. I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. They had lost everything. Sometimes they came in, and they took everything away from them. Many Christians lost their property in the persecution. He says, but you're rich. Because, see, we don't need material things. We have the riches of Jesus Christ. We have the spiritual blessings. As James chapter 2 says, we are riches, our riches in Christ. We, we don't have to have material things. And they lost there. And then there's a third thing. He says, you blasphemy. They, they say, people say bad things about you. What did they say about them? We could say this. The people say bad things about you? 
If you stand for Jesus Christ, in our culture, they say, you're intolerant. You're, uh, uh, you, don't, you don't like certain people. You hate certain people. You did this, you did... And we'd say, well, I don't do that. But that's what they call us. What did they say about these people in the first century? You know what they said? They said they were cannibals. You know why? They said because somewhere they had heard that Jesus said, take this bread, this is my body, eat this. Take this juice, this is my blood, drink this. So you guys are cannibals. That's what they said. They went around telling people that believers were cannibals. They also said that there were orgies in, in, because they had what they called a love feast. And if you remember, the church, Christians would gather together and they had a love feast in which everybody ate together and then they had the Lord's Supper and they had Bible teaching. But they said, no, no, that's orgy. And they said they were atheists. They said... The Christians are atheists because they don't worship the emperor. And they're anti-government because they don't worship the emperor. He says, they blaspheme you. They say all these bad things about you. Wow. He called it the synagogue of Satan because he says, because that means that they're total opposition to him. Now, how many of you would like to live in Smyrna? You say, no, I don't. <laughs> Maybe I'd go ahead and stay in Ephesus and see if I can get things turned around. So watch what happens. Here's the exhortation. Oh, by the way, there's no condemnation. None whatsoever. Watch what he says. Do not fear, verse 10, what you're about to suffer. Wait a minute. What if we got a letter from God right here that said, okay, Stillwater Bible Church, don't fear, you're about to suffer you'd say, I think I'm moving to Oklahoma City, right? What are you going to do? What would you do if you got a letter that says, from God, you are about to suffer? What is he going to say? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prisons. You'll be tested. You'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. You're going to die. Some of you are going to die. He says, don't be, don't be afraid. You're a, don't be afraid. You're about to suffer. Great suffering is coming. And he actually says that Satan, Satan who's the prince of power there, he's going to get some of them put into prison. And he says, you'll be tested for 10 days. Now, does he mean 10 days like a limited time or 10 literal days or just a time of persecution? Since I take the Bible historically, literally, and grammatically, I think it's probably best to say that they, he told him, you're going to have 10 days of really suffering in your church. Because they're going to come after you. He says, but be faithful. And look what he says. Be faithful unto death. Some of them are going to get killed. Now, what would happen if we came to you and said, Jesus Christ just came in here and said, hang in there, y'all. You're going to have some really persecution for the next 10 days. And some of you are going to be killed for your faith. Just be ready. How would you feel about that? We've already said, we don't want to be this church. Now, let me just say this. We're not this church. This church suffered because they stood for Jesus Christ. In America today, we stand for Jesus Christ. We're not suffering. We're suffering a little bit, but we're not suffering unto death. They're not coming after and killing us, but in other parts of the world, there are. There are Smyrna churches all over this world who are people being persecuted and killed because they believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's the church. He says, listen. Be faithful unto death. I'm going to give you something. 
Here's going to be a reward. Look what he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is a reward. That's a faithful reward. It goes back to James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials, who hangs in there under trials. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. These people who died for their faith and stood strong for their faith in the midst of persecution one day will receive the crown of life. It's a reward. It's a crown. It's trusting God in trials. And then he ends with the promise about the overcomer, and it goes back because it has two things there. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear it. So listen carefully. If you're listening, listen carefully what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, it's plural to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So I put this promise this way. The overcomer is going to get the crown of life and not be hurt by the second death. Now, we know this, that just from what we know from Scripture is no believer will be hurt by the second death which is eternal separation from God. But I think why he's doing this is to remind them, look, you, many of you are going to be killed, but you will never be separated from God. Never be separated from God. In fact, the way it's written in the Scripture here, it says, he who overcomes will not be hurt. Literally, it's a double negative in the Greek, which means you never, no way, ever be separated from God. That You'll never be hurt by the second death. Believers will never be separated from Jesus Christ, even in trials and death. I think that's why he started by saying Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the one who died and rose again. I think that's why he brings it up. You'll never be separated. Let me ask you something. If you were to die right now as a believer, where would you go? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is he with you now? He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. If he comes in the clouds, you'll be with him. You will never be separated from Jesus Christ. And he's telling these people who are about to be put to death for their faith, you will never be separated from Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about it. So powerful. Here's the suffering church. Letter to the suffering church. They're faithful in the trials. Suffering's coming. Some are going to be put to death. Be faithful. You'll be rewarded, and you'll never be separated. So we've seen the first two churches. Ephesus, they left their first love. And Smyrna, faithful in suffering. We could easily be the first, church, the first church, if we're not careful, because we could be doing it out of duty rather than love. We're not the second church, because we're not being persecuted unto death for our faith. But the time may come. The time may come. Let me give you some applications. Let's serve out of love, not duty. Let's do it. Let, let's go back. Let's, let, let's not leave our first love. Let's go back and think. Let's remember. Let's remember the early days. What was it like when you first believed in Christ and you have an eternal life and, and you realize the joy and, and when you started to serve and you thought, man, I'm getting to serve the one who saved me forever and I'm getting to do this. Well, let's make sure we, we do that way. Let's go back and think, how did I live? What, what, how did I serve? How did I think about it? change your mind, get the attitude, look at the right way and serve out of, out of loving Jesus Christ and do the works, you know, do, do what you're supposed to do, but do it out of love. That's really the key. And that's for us. I think the first church can match us if we're not careful. We want to always be right. We want to always hold to the Bible. We always want to have the grace message. We always want to teach the Bible. We always want to do things, but we want to do everything we do out of love for Jesus Christ and not just because we have to. The second application, let's expect suffering in our lives. Let's expect it. Suffering is part of being a Christian. We don't like that. Uh, but you remember Philippians 1.29, Paul said, it is required of a believer, first of all, to be, be, to be saved and to suffer for Christ's sake. 
if Jesus Christ doesn't come back soon and our country and our world continues the way it's going, the persecution's coming here and it's coming terribly. And what are we going to do? We don't want to be the Ephesus church because we want to hold to the Bible and we want to serve out of love. If we're the Smyrna church, we want to stand strong in the midst of the suffering. We'll never be separated from our Savior. We suffer for righteousness, not sin. That's what Peter wrote. Peter said, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for, for doing what's right, not for doing what's wrong. And finally, there are rewards for suffering, being faithful and getting the crown of life. So may we serve out of love, trusting God in the trials of life, knowing that we'll be rewarded and we'll always be with Jesus.